0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the PGR cast. Today with us is Patrick Sullivan, a PhD student and research engineer at the National Composite Centre in Bristol.
1: Patrick is currently in the second year of his engineering doctorate at the University of Bristol, where he also graduated with a Masters in Engineering Design in 2020.
0: In this episode, we touch on the differences between undergrad and postgrad studies, his newly awarded patent, and what it means to be an inventor, as well as life in Bristol as a student.
1: All right, well, thank you very much for being here today, Patrick. How are you?
2: Yeah, good, thank you. The sun is shining. Bristol is looks better than the sun.
1: It is, and we do have to keep these windows closed today, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately. Right, so would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, about your time in Bristol as a student, about your undergraduate and your postgrads?
2: Yeah, so I first moved to Bristol in September 2015, uh, fresh from A levels and starting the five-year course in engineering and design. Uh, with a year in industry. And yeah, I mean, I finished that in, in the midst of COVID. So I only actually graduated from that last week, which was quite... Um, Congratulations. Bizarre. Thank you very much. It was so weird because everyone was like, congrats. And it was like, well, I did this two years ago. Yeah, like, you got yeah. the certificate. <laughs> yeah. But it was it was a really nice day to, to enjoy. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the, the uniqueness for me was that I was the only one from my course. It was quite a small course. Uh, There's about 20 of us graduated. And I was the only one that continued to postgraduate studies and we stayed in the University Mm -hmm. of Bristol, so it hadn't really felt like I'd left and come back to graduate like everyone else. So in August 2020, about a couple of months after I finished my undergraduate, um, I started my postgraduate with the IDC in composite manufacture, uh, specialising in the snapping
0: carbon fibre. And Patrick, if I can ask, what drew you to Bristol in the first place?
2: It's a good question. I always wanted to go to Imperial College I grew up in this small town called Wellenborough in the Midlands and there wasn't much there, but we are about an hour off from London from the train, so I always uh, dreamed of, of you know, living in like, Notting Hill Gate and studying in South Kensington and all those things. And I, I got an interview at Imperial, and I got an interview at the Bristol Engineering and Design course and I got offers from both, but actually what, what changed my mind was coming to both cities when it wasn't an open day, so on the open day in Bristol it was Quite hectic. Obviously, a lot of directed sort of travel as a as a prospective student. you get told to go to this talk, and I think my my one success when the open day was that I found the engineering <coughs> design course. Stumbled across it on the stool, but then when I came back for the interview, it was like February. It was quieter. I stayed in this little Airbnb, not Airbnb just a little B on the Downs, and walked all the way into uni. It took about half hour. It was just so much more peaceful. And then, obviously, when I went to my interview in Imperial, I didn't really get that vibe. I felt like the students studying there were a lot more serious and a lot more stressed. And uh, don't get me wrong, I got hellishly stressed during my undergrad. Uh, <laughs> the atmosphere of the city was a lot more welcoming. And I don't think I would have stayed in London for seven years and, and felt like calling it my long term home.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm.
1: Um, I am a bit biased having been the, been here in Bristol now for eight years, both my undergraduate and postgraduate. But I do have you here from friends who've studied in London and other university towns like Sheffield or Nottingham. And Bristol is consistently ranked as a really good city to live in in your 20s and as a student. So
2: and has a high home. home ratio of graduates to stay mm. on to the fair. I think the city is filled with people with non-West Country accent, but it um, happened to come to uni yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Of course, in uh, engineering and, um, well, specifically for our course, which was a general engineering uh, course, it it ranked quite highly. Yeah. Um, and I think since then, Imperial has introduced a general engineer engineering degree.
2: Yeah, I was the first year they offered that. Well, it's kind of like, it was funny, was we're engineering design mm-hmm. and they... Design engineering. (laughs) I did look at it. I actually applied for mechanical at at Imperial, and yeah, I think it it, it all just depends on like a little bit of luck and like what you. Your only your open day is like one day, and your the interview day was you know one or two, but it's still little snippets of the city. Mm -hmm. It's just lucky like where I stayed. I thought I really remember that walk through the downs. It's just like wow, this is actually a really beautiful city. Whereas I think on the open day. We didn't. I think we stayed overnight in Bath because they were on consecutive days, mm-hmm. and then we travelled in, and everyone was travelling in because they're consecutive open days. And I think it took us two hours to drive from Bath to Bristol. It just didn't.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It was nice. We were pretty stressed that the interview day. I had that walk, and that was the, the kind of stroke of luck or just situation that just means that I remembered Bristol. as this really beautiful, green, mm-hmm. luscious city, even in the, the winter. And mm-hmm. That was what stuck in my mind when I was ordering them Different mm-hmm. universities.
1: So we all agree that Bristol is a good city to live in, in your twenties and as a student. Did you, out of curiosity, apply for any other opportunities outside of Bristol? Did you feel like after doing a five-year degree, you thought, should I move, should I
3: stay?
2: No, short answer. I, being the kind of COVID-affected final year, I was just seeing all the way through to of my degree. I'd, um, I'd applied for the doctorate, or sort of started that conversation about well it has stages but really December so I, I was at the National Composite Centre for a summer placement between mm-hmm. my fourth and fifth year of my undergrad degree and then I knew I wanted to stay, go back there I really loved working there but I didn't want to do a graduate scheme because uh, I'd done quite a few different areas of composite engineering already and, and I didn't want to do those rotations that they kind of put you through mm-hmm. um, I didn't want to feel like part of like I don't know, a, a kind of Convey about of we're just churning out people mm-hmm. through grad schemes so but I'd seen a few NHD students at the NCC mm-hmm. including people that are still on the course now and that's just sort of appealed so I sort of knew leaving that in September that I wanted to consider that then in December started the conversation from the university side obviously being here at the University of Bristol made that a little bit easier um, I had my personal future knew the director of the, the doctoral centre But then when COVID started to affect my studies in sort of end of February, start of March, I really just was, I don't know, consumed by the rest of my degree and by, you know, obviously everything that was going on around. I was back home. I just couldn't wait to get back into Bristol. and Mm -hmm. I didn't know when that was going to be. And then, yeah, the doctoral application sort of ticked over. Um, Mm -hmm. So I didn't actively seek out any opportunities. There was a a quite strange opportunity I definitely seem to, I think this will probably be a theme. Today, I seem to attract some really weird opportunities that just sort of come <laughs> rather than like me seeking actively outwards. Um, I don't know what it is about, but it seems to attract them. But um, my work at NCC, I did some really specific work in ceramic matrix composites. And there was a postdoc that was leaving University of Birmingham, or I think planning to leave, that was working on that same sort of project. Mm-hmm. And because he was vacating that role, they needed someone desperately in like the world of COVID, of so someone who was in the UK, which is quite rare for, for that specialty, who was at a loose end, who could work on ceramic major composites. So while I was applying for the, the IDC in Bristol, I did get approached by the University of Birmingham for a postdoc role without a doctorate. So it was really bizarre. <laughs> six months, so it was a six-month Period that they just needed someone to come in and finish off the project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was tempted to do that for six months and then start the IDC afterwards.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but I was thinking the Birmingham would come quicker. So actually the, the Bristol position came up in August. And mm-hmm. I was thinking that yeah, I might have a couple months head start on the Birmingham role, but actually it didn't work out. And so I just started straight in the Bristol and knew that was going to be four years. So
3: Mm-hmm. You
2: know, again, in the time of COVID, my decision making was oh, four absolutely. years after yeah. six months, yeah. as much yeah. as it ought to be a postdoc before mm-hmm. being a doc.
1: But I'm picking up on that. I'm coming towards the end of my four year mm-hmm. doctorate, and I have absolutely taken for granted the stability and security of uh you know going through GCSEs and A levels and then having a five year degree to work towards and a four year degree to, w- to work towards. So it's um it's both daunting and exciting at the moment.
2: Yeah and that was it I, I quite like the stability of mm-hmm. knowing where I lived and knowing the university. I felt coming towards the end of my five years I was like oh, I'm only just really starting to get to know my staff, my Absolutely. members and yes. find my There's yes. a lot of times in, in my first couple years as an undergrad I kind of Tried to forget that I was a student and I had like part time jobs and I like, mm-hmm. you know, just lived in Bristol and didn't really do much stupid things. And then in my final year, especially being cut short by COVID, it was probably the most comfortable I felt in a university environment. Yeah. To just be told that, okay, that's ended and we've got to move on. I was like, post grad actually sounds quite appealing because yeah. it allows me to stay mm-hmm. in the environment and. Yeah, I don't know, I'm just used to being around people for mm-hmm. a longer period of time, and so it felt weird just to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. yeah, so, the, the industrial doctorate is a really nice balance because I was also ready for something in industry, mm-hmm. so to be able to keep the foot in both camps, it like, just allowed me to tick those boxes.
0: So would you say it was quite a soft transition then from undergrad to postgrad, because you were staying in the same place and you were familiar?
2: Yeah, definitely. And I've noticed on my course, we've got like a, an array of different backgrounds, in terms um, so of there are people mm-hmm. who were at Bristol on a different undergrad or people who have come in and you know from apprenticeship backgrounds and done like part-time degrees and people who have done degrees at the unis and it certainly helps knowing you know the systems not being afraid of like my ERP so I didn't use much than an undergrad but <laughs> at, like SharePoint and having the same email address so everything still comes flowing through the same email address like yeah, that definitely made it easier. Um, it also made it easier that I'd worked at my company previous. Mm-hmm. So again, if I'd started mid-COVID without knowing anyone in the company, with a lot of remote working, I think that would have been a really mm-hmm. difficult transition. Mm-hmm. So my my start to my doctorate was probably the easiest period because I was just like chilling out in a nice new flat. I didn't have to flat shit anymore. I, I choked, <laughs> which was mm-hmm. lovely. Uh, again, and like an actual decent stipend can do that to a student and mm-hmm. takes okay. away all that stress yeah. of shared living. And then I was just like, oh, I can actually focus on my work now because I didn't need to work part time. So I was like, oh, that's brilliant, mm-hmm. and actually concentrate on on my studies. And mm-hmm. yeah, it was it, knowing people as well did it smoothen out the whole thing.
1: What about the subjects and the structure of your undergraduate degree compared to your postgrad? How prepared? did you feel?
2: Definitely different. A lot of the work I've done in my postgrads I'd say my year in industry and my industrial placements probably helped more mm-hmm. than my actual undergrad. I, uh, I didn't like with undergrad having lots on at the same time. I think that like engineering is probably one of the most guilty for that. Like they pile a whole load of modules on you in like a single term mm-hmm. and you're mm-hmm. really just, I remember having to be, I'm quite, I'm quite Obsessive. So like if I've got six modules on at the same time, I would spend like a day on one and I just like blitz one coursework to the end. And then I'd be like, oh God, I've got another piece of coursework during a week time. And I'd have to so if I had two deadlines on the same day, I'd have to really switch quite quickly, um, which I really struggled with in undergrad. So I really enjoyed my industrial experience where I had more sort of single projects to focus on. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. went into a postgrad degree. I've actually found this suited me a lot more because I'm just like, can be obsessed with my my Mm -hmm. subjects. And then again, the way our our units are structured, we have these like week-long intense units on the IDC, which again, just allow me to like put my out-of-office on, go to those lectures the whole week and then like just, yeah, surround myself with the subjects, do the coursework and then that's it. So mm-hmm. I go back to my, my project. That's,
1: that's really interesting because, uh, so obviously coming towards the end of your doctorate, um, and I do an industrial doctorate just like yourself, Patrick, so you're, you're still answering to industrial requirements whilst you know trying to package up this um, really nice, neat academic story. So I do feel like I've got my, my fingers in a lot of pies at the moment, and I keep thinking, how did I do it in my undergrad? How did I... Study for my exams and get my coursework in and do my master's project and keep saying and make food and meet up. <laughs> I honestly don't know where I where I took the time, and I think that there is an an element of just a very big change between the undergrad life and the postgrad, especially at the beginning, yeah. where your first year is meant to be more of a an exploratory time of. What's out in the literature? What can I contribute? What I'm I'm going to make out of my project? It's a lot calmer, certainly I found it for my first year, than the final year of my undergrad. And obviously because one happened straight after the other, it was a a huge change in in pace for my brain.
2: Yeah, I absolutely (laughs) agree. And and, uh, yeah, now I'm in my second year. Everything's coming at once. I've got a few more things. (laughs) Of conferences that I'm having to, I'm going to my first conferences this summer, and suddenly, like, how do I do, you know, papers and like who, who do I ask for what? And suddenly, there's a lot more demand. And then my company now thinks like, oh yeah, Patrick's good at that, and you start to get random people mm-hmm. trying to arrange meetings with you because they want to discuss your work, and mm-hmm. they're like, you have to say no a lot more. <laughs> first year of my my doctorate, I was like, I was very much outwardly going, I was seeking new opportunities, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you have to switch again to rejecting yeah. people demanding time because, yeah, you've got so much to work on. Mm-hmm. That first year, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And I still am quite happy with where I've got to, You know, especially when you, you think about the end goal being the four years of thesis, it comes about quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. I was at Bristol for my undergrad and because I knew a lot of the people in the department. I probably got a head start and I feel like I'm in a good position. Mm-hmm. But definitely now you suddenly yeah you're flooded with with invites and you're flooded with mm-hmm. you know you should be going to I think it's like a a event next week which people are asking if I'm going to and I I'm like, oh, I haven't even thought about what work I'm going to do yeah. tomorrow like it's just a yeah it it was so much easier to be more organised first where you are starting from zero and build up
1: mm-hmm. um, I think we forget as well we're coming out of the pandemic and mm-hmm. it's uh, certainly in the academic environment. It put a pause for a while on uh, in-person networking, and mm. yeah, some online conferences organized. But it doesn't take the same amount of time and effort. And I don't know about you guys, but I find going into the office it just drains me a lot more than it used to when it was normal to go into the office five times a week.
2: Yeah, I really like uh, the. Mm. I like the balance you can get with a uh, industrial sponsor. And work from home, so I don't achieve it much in the week. But I, I agree when you when you go into the office, uh, especially if I go into the National Composite Centre, I sit around other people and they all have questions for me. It's really nice, mm-hmm. and you get to sit and have lunch with someone. But like my laundry becomes piles up. My <laughs> prepare more food. because you've Got to take it into the office and can't just cook at lunch. And it does, yeah, it drains you in different ways, but it, it gives you up in different mm-hmm. ways. And so I try really hard. I don't keep to it very hard. I try to do like a 2-2-1 two, two, or a 3 one, one in terms of I'd be at the office or in the workshops at NCC twice or three times a week. I work from home once or twice a week and then I come into universities on Wednesday, like would say. Um, but when suddenly you get other people trying to demand things from your calendar, that changes. But in an ideal week, that's how I split it. Mm-hmm. Because it, as you say, you go into the office, but you have that I don't know, that collective energy and you you can then give to other people, like especially when you're working research. It's great to be able to sort of sow the seeds into other people's work mm-hmm. and feel like... Mm-hmm. But there it is draining. So those sort of one or two days at home means I can cook and I can clean and I can do a bit more writing and I can be a bit more focused on me. Mm-hmm. And then when I come into uni, then you connect with different people and mm-hmm. um, you can meet your supervisor in person, which does make a difference, I think.
3: Yeah.
1: And I,
2: just sort of... Yeah with a few more uni stuff. And then it also means that you wear your different hats in the right way. Your yep. self-care hat, your company hat, and the university hat mm-hmm. seem to have locations there. It's quite nice coming out of the pandemic. Of.
1: So you mentioned self-care there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I have done a bit of research and I've heard that you did some work in your undergrad to do with uh, mental health and given out advice to undergrad students. Could you shine a light on what mental health means to you, how you've been trying to keep it up, and maybe the differences in keeping up with your mental health going from an undergraduate to a postgraduate setting.
2: Yeah, so my main volunteering role with mental health is with Tractical Talk Club. So back in February 2019, we set up uh, the University of Bristol Talk Club, which is still ongoing. I still run that on a Saturday morning uh, for students. So that's great. And, and the term we use uh, with that charity is called mental fitness rather than mental health. I think that's a really nice definition, um, especially for students where I think a lot of the need for mental health services from the university is people aren't at that kind of clinical point. They've not got like a diagnosed mental health condition. And therefore, there's like a hesitancy to sort of seek it out, especially when you realise that It's a lot of demand for it, and you might be on a waiting list that could be someone else's place that you suddenly feel like you can't go to a mental health service uh, because you're mentally ill. You haven't got an illness. Um, So the reason I have mental fitness is that even when you are mentally fit and you're feeling well, you still need to take steps to look after it, and that kind of keeps you fitter later down the line. And so, yeah, so Chalk is kind of that halfway house-like I'm not a qualified therapist, um, I've just got a fair bit of experience now, but we it's like a peer-to-peer support group where we sit and we go through a structure where we say how we are out of 10 to check in, we give a bit of explanation for that, we then say what we're grateful for, we then say what we're going to do for the next week for our mental fitness, getting sort a self-care thing, and then we check out with another number out of 10. I don't know, it's, it's just a lot nicer than making a huge leap to go and see a counsellor, don't get me wrong. I've, I've done my time in therapy as well, and it's been incredibly valuable. Um, you know, I've also been on medication, I've been on antidepressants during my final year at uni. And like I've been through all the day stages as well. But the point I'm personally at now is really in the mental fitness area, where it's about keeping you at those eights and nines out of ten. Mm-hmm. You know, throughout the week, and when you have a stressful period, which comes about both in undergraduate and postgraduate need to be able to keep on top of where you're at and be able to make steps to improve your mental mental health. And
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, definitely as an undergrad, I, as I mentioned that you know I've I've ended up on medication and being in, in therapy stages of my undergrad degree because there was huge amounts of, of stress and yeah. pressure on, on me and mm-hmm. myself mostly. Um, mm-hmm. And I think during my undergrad contributors that I don't have now during my postgrad, included having to work part-time and financial pressures. Um, the moment I found out that the, the university had a financial assistance fund it was, it was crazy. I was like, I hit the bottom of my overdraft and then someone said, oh yeah, just send this letter in and put down what you want. And then when I, when I did that, the financial services were like, oh, we haven't got much money left. It was towards summer. Um, you'll be really lucky to get some and, I was oh God. And then they saw my bank balance and how much I tried. <laughs> and they were like, you really need some money. Um, but yeah, but I think as an undergrad, like the financial stresses, especially at the minute with inflation, that, that doesn't really affect the way the maintenance rates are.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and
2: the or, uh, student or,
1: or postgraduate stipends. Well, it is the
2: same for stipend. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the fact that as an undergrad, you are very much left to either beg to your family and friends, or to kind of really slum it out, Uh, I found really difficult, especially in shared living, especially when you're told that you need to go out and do all these things and join all these societies. So that was definitely a factor, Mm -hmm. definitely the kind of academic structure, as I said, about how many modules you have as an undergraduate and uh, how many lecture hours you have, contact hours constantly going from place to place, and then we say, oh, yeah, chuck a part-time job, chucking in societies, you suddenly stretched. Mm. And if you're someone who likes to say yes and likes to go out and do things and likes to have a smile on your face, that pressure really conflicts with your personality. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. as, as a postgraduate, yes, the stipend, money concerns are there, but at least you have a, a kind of income that you can work towards. Mm-hmm. As a undergraduate student, I literally, I did, I did the maths at the start of the year and I was like, oh, I'm going to be £3,000 short based on my rent, basically the needs and what I'm getting in as a, a maintenance loan. And sort of look to your dad and you're like, well, Dad's just semi-retired and, you know, my dad's now 72. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, you know, what can we do here? And it's like, well, nothing really, you know. Yeah, yeah. Whereas as a postgrad, I've, like, obviously I manage my own money now and I've actually got a savings account and kind of think, how much do I need to chip into there and like, how can you balance that out? But at least you know your stipend's there exactly. and it tends to for a decent rent plus decent living. Whereas as an undergrad, I think that was a huge pressure on myself that, yeah, it was very difficult because for five years especially, it never really had a pause.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously yeah. de- depending, on the, de- depending on the postgraduate degree, that will mean different stipend yeah. amounts and different financial positions. But... For, luckily for industrial doctorates like ourselves it it does tend um, I mean, yeah, it, does, it does tend to take that stress away
2: yeah I think there's, there's it's going to be tighter like I think I've even noticed in the last few months that while well, you say we've got a good stipend because there's no sort of I don't know no baked in pay increase or pay review mm-hmm. during your time as a doctorate you do then start looking at money and inflation in a different way Mm. um Mm. yeah it it will become tighter for every doctoral student Mm -hmm. and it's not like in if you're in industry you would just i know a lot of people who are switching jobs right now because they're moving jobs because they can ask for more money at a new job Mm. we can't do that on a a doctoral degree and that is something Mm. next year will start to affect a lot of people's mental health because you know, we, we joke about PhD students being poor and sort of choosing a lower wage, or lower money because they want to pursue something they love and that's fixed. And so we're only going to get poorer from here. But that joke does become a reality when, when you know you start to feel that pinch because of inflation. And obviously, it is a nationwide conversation, but I think us as postgrad students need to, I think, acknowledge that... that we're going to be probably in worse position because we have no control. We can't move jobs. We have to Mm
0: -hmm.
2: accept what is handed to us.
0: Do you think that the university can do more to support students financially and give them some security so that you're not really... It's not so that they can go and spend the money on booze or whatever else that everyone would probably jump to, but to, to spend money on their students to give them better mental fitness?
2: Yes, I think... The university has greatly improved during my time. Um, I remember I mean one of the reasons I got involved was because of the high number of suicides in my second year, so in about 2017, of student suicides. Yeah, when I came back from my year in industry and yeah, that's when I started to get involved in that sort of work around that. And yeah, the services that now exist since then, so well-being and mm-hmm. all um, that is is a financial has been in a financial investment from the university and will continue to be a financial investment from the university, which I think has been, been a really good impact. The pandemic kind of scuppered a lot and, and continues to scupper a lot in terms of that progress, but I think it has been a financial investment. I think with postgraduates, yes, obviously, if you'll pay your postgrads more, they probably will have less pressures of life and mm-hmm. don't think would we'll spend it on booze and whatnot. So, um, you talk about a living wage. I think a Bristol living wage is very different from a Sheffield living wage mm-hmm. and a Manchester living wage. And so, I probably would encourage the university to look into the specific living expenses year on year. Certainly, mm-hmm. when I moved in, first moved into private accommodation in my second year, 2016, compared to now, the rent rises has been extortionate. So, I think we have to acknowledge that is a real problem, and whether we need to review our pay around that. Yeah, I don't know what knock on effects in terms of how many postgrad students can be accepted by the university by that, but I think you should probably, if you take on a student, you should probably pay them a fair amount to be comfortable. And then, mm-hmm. at the grad level, uh, I, I support the same. I, I wrote an article for the student newspaper Epigram a few years ago about how much more we'd get in maintenance loan based on living expenses in Bristol and uh, compared to Lincoln, uh, which is, was the lowest cost university city I found. Bristol undergrad students would, on average, get an extra £1,100 a year from the maintenance loan system. It was about a quarter. So, um, yeah, I think, yes. But I don't think that's... For undergrad, I don't think that's the university's responsibility. Mm -hmm. I think that's the student finance England's responsibility. I mean, I'm
1: sure um, that would... That sounds like you'd be opening up a whole can of worms of, well, should student fees for an engineering degree that uses expensive labs... And so on, be the same as, a, as an arts degree. So, I mean, that is something I've no idea on what sort of policy change would need to happen.
2: Yeah, or even the, the tuition fee system versus the graduate tax system. It's, mm. it's kind of they're, they're pushing that way. Like the amount of inflation is now, it's, it's basically just a tax, right? Mm. For the majority of students that are undergrads. Uh, tuition fee loan is, is like a tax and so yeah, in my mind anyway I mean we did a five year degree so I sometimes mm. tol it up in my head four years worth of interest in a postgrad and yeah. I'm like I just come you know I've come to the point in my life where I'm accepting paying nine percent above 25,000 pounds or mm. you know the threshold that it was for, for my generation of, of an undergrad student I've just taken that as, as the rest of my life and mm. if I ever pay it off I mean I'll be a very rich man anyway yeah. <laughs> and um, it's, it's yeah it's a mindful it's, it's very complex as well I think a lot mm. of people don't realize RPI is included in your interest rate so currently RPI is increasing on a near daily basis and when yeah you know, a few years ago it was close to close to I think it was like three percent so we're now paying so much more interest a day on our student loan we were literally two months ago um, which is we don't even realize when I
1: so, I want to bring it back to the support systems available to you as a undergrad and a postgrad student. Maybe on your your own supervisor uh, student relationships, both in your undergrad and postgrad.
2: Yeah, I, I've been blessed with both, to be honest. So, um, mm-hmm. Brilliant supervisors. My um, supervisor, my undergraduate degree. Um, I'm still in touch with. Went above and beyond what was expected. An uh, incredible staff member, um, incredibly committed to his students. I and think we may have be...
1: had the same supervisor. Yeah, I think we probably. I don't. I don't know if Paul Harper will give this a listen, but
2: we could share it with him. Uh, yeah, yeah if, if he fun.
1: does. Paul Harper is an incredible member of staff and supervisor, and the reason why engineering design continues to be. Uh, such a revered course at
2: the University of Bristol. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I was blessed. He was my personal tutor as well as my course director. Um, and so, yeah, so we we used to meet quite regularly. I could tell him everything. Uh, yeah, he was one of the first people I called when I went on antidepressants to let them know. And I think that's so important that if you take measures for your own health that you can inform the university and that should be through your, your personal tutor at undergraduate level
3: mm-hmm. um,
2: or your senior tutor. They're usually, slightly better to speak to about those issues if you haven't got such a good tutor. So yeah, I was really lucky. I knew a lot more people with bad luck at undergrad level,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and therefore had no point of contact with the university really, especially in first mm-hmm. and second year. They really struggled to communicate, especially when your course can be quite large. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in postgrads, I've got two really good supervisors. One who is really clued up on inclusivity and mental health and has roles in the university for that as well as his academic role. So we meet every week, even if it's only like I think we met today for maybe seven minutes, our meeting last. Mm-hmm. But that's because in minute one, I know I can come to him and say, this isn't going really well or right, I need to talk about this. And then we'll have our full half hour. But just to have that slot every week, I think, is really important for a postgraduate student that might not have much human engagement otherwise. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So I think frequency above necessarily quantity. quantity. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think making sure they have a regular check-in. So I've I've been really lucky. I know, especially for undergraduates, um, sometimes personal students aren't so present Mm -hmm. um, because they have so many students. But I think... A postgraduate the supervisor should be interested in work and therefore interested in as a person mm-hmm. and I think we can probably demand a greater service from a postgraduate supervisor as well.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely yeah so obviously the I don't know the numbers but the quantity of undergraduate students down to postgraduate helps with the ratio or the number of postgraduate students that a supervisor will have and um, I mean something that my academic supervisor does really well is that he manages he has managed to create a uh, network between his postgraduate students his undergraduate master's students and his postdoc associates almost putting us in dead diagrams of you you and you do the same sort of research and overlap here how about you have a conversation and that obviously nurtures relationships, but also can lead and has led to really interesting publications. And in into my second year of my engineering doctorate, I started unofficially having a secondary academic supervisor, now official, who is much younger than my primary academic supervisor. And I found that really useful because he had just recently gone through the PhD process. He knew the ups and downs. He was brutally honest with me. And he has served as uh, both a, a bridge between my primary academic supervisor and myself, and a mentor um, as well as someone that you can relate to. Those types of dynamics is maybe something that uh, you wouldn't have in an undergrad setting.
2: Yeah, I think. Oh, you mentioned that Venn diagram. I uh, I'd, I'd like to see, and I've always it's been it's been where I've enjoyed myself most, and felt most comfortable, as I said, in my final year of undergrad was actually where I felt like I, I kind of started to be long, is when students themselves come forward to support other students. Like, we see it as a sort of journey of pain that we have to go through ourselves, right? And then we say, oh, we've got really supportive coursemates, but really you're just all dragged. like you're just going through stress together.
1: And uh, you've done mm. a key difference between... An undergraduate and postgraduate degree which is the timings mm. so even though my situation was quite rare in that there was four well four girls even uh, starting at the same time on the same day in September 2018 but even then we were all sponsored by different companies based in different offices and our timelines have mm. also diverged even though there are industrial doctoral colleges like what we belong to to the IDC or yourself, and at the CDT, the timeline of a postgraduate degree is not the same as an undergrad, which means that at any one point, you could be dealing with a completely different set of deadlines and pressures on you than I could be. And mm. that is how you lose community and network and what you said, going through stress separately, but at the same time. That can be a big source of mental health issues or mental instability or unf- unfit being yep. unfit because you feel isolated because everyone went through different timelines.
0: And I think having that sort of diverse community, like you say, of people who are busy at different times and focusing on different things means that you've always got somebody there. You've always got someone who's just finished to go to a conference or has just submitted a paper and has a a week or so just to have a chat with you and, and guide you over whatever line that you're heading for. And then you repay the favor six months, a year down the line. And you're just constantly moving through that community, supporting people and getting your own support. And it makes your personal life better, but it also makes your academic work a lot better. You you get academic collaboration you wouldn't otherwise have, and you, do, you work better because you're happier.
1: And I think something that I've learned is just a, a very big source of imposter syndrome or uh, general insecurities in your own work stems from comparison. Um, and that's you know, not just in work, anything. You can't compare your journey to another postgraduate because there are just too many factors that come into play which make those timelines different and make those pressures different um, and that's something that I've had to learn the hard way um, along the way
2: yeah on, on that point it's just uh, what you say Matt about this community it's 100% the academic community can be there to support you but through doing talk club outside the university as well I love having non-academic middle-aged friends exactly what you said there Cardi in that like I, on a Monday evening, I, you know, it's on North Street. I, I go to the, the normal talk club, not the UAB talk club. And um, if I'm there talking about going to a conference or being worried about submitting a paper, um, my co captain of that session is, uh, you know, he, he's so great. He goes, it's so, like, wow, you're really clever, Patrick. And he's he a, he's like, oh, Whenever, whenever I talk about academic life he's like "Oh, I always have to remember that you're doing something really cool like really amazing like I love that he's got two two young kids and um, my graduation my parents brought their uh, sort of six year old Wesley that they've just adopted and uh, we were going to maybe to drop it off at Ben's house he's got these two lovely young kids and his, his wife and his, his sister-in-law was there and it took him this dog and they were like oh so amazing that you graduated, like, graduated. it's just for me that kind of like you say, you're in the bubble, you can really think you are the worst in the bubble. You take yourself out of that and you talk to someone from a completely different walk of life who's mm. you know, working yeah, that Monday, Friday nine to five and looking after a family and they look at you like, you know, the sun shines out of the right? It's amazing. You've got to like,
1: count your blessings. Yeah, you're mm. like, mm.
2: yeah, like we're, we're in a very small percentage even just doing mm-hmm. what we're doing. And uh, we you know how many people go to university now it's like 50%, but... How many go on to do a master's, that's takes another percentage of how many are doing a doctorate, another percentage mm-hmm. of how many are doing a doctorate in your specific subject, mm-hmm. even fewer, probably like a hundred in the world. You're in the top hundred in the world for a certain thing, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Like,
2: that's mm-hmm. in itself. Like we've done amazing to get to this point. It's a lot of hard work. So mm-hmm. I think like that's that's usually like I said, it's a really nice word to describe a self-affirmation. That's it. Self-affirmation. That's, that's like. You can practice that. You can I know mm-hmm. it sounds really cheesy and would probably think we're way too smart to, to do this, but tell yourself that you've, mm-hmm. you've had to work incredibly hard to get to the point you are and tell yourself that you've achieved something mm-hmm. no one else has achieved because you've made it through your mm-hmm. journey and that sort of self-worth starts mm-hmm. to come. It's, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's not easy, but it has to, you have to remind
1: yourself that. So you were recently in the news for a, a patent that you developed yourself. Could you tell us a bit more about that? How did that come about?
2: Yes, this is one of those uh, I mentioned earlier, weird opportunities that was came at me rather than um, something I necessarily sought. So while I was a teenager, um, or even looking younger, uh, I wanted to be an inventor. It was I think the first line of my personal statement as entering into undergrad. Was I actually an inventor and not an engineer? And then my dad's uh, my dad's, best friend, who was a dentist, my parents are, are like, kind of like estate agents for commercial property, like shops. Mm-hmm. So like, they didn't know anything about engineering or inventing or whatever. So it just went wrong with whatever I said as a teenager. But David, the dentist, who was quite well read, was like, oh, Patrick, you don't really want to be an inventor. As much as I told him that inventor Tom from The Apprentice had a real job and he was an inventor, David <laughs> you do an engineering degree and, and then you can be an inventor. And, and so, yeah, I came here to Bristol to do engineering, forgot about the kind of inventor thing because I was bogged down in maths and you know physics and mechanics and all these other things that made me forget about some wilder ideas. And um, then I did in my fourth year, there was a workshop run for engineering design students um, by someone called Dr. Mo Abelkir, and he's my original co inventor for the patent that we've been awarded. And so he's actually a philosophy uh, student, so well, he's a philosophy academic. He was, he did his PhD at Bristol. Uh, he was a sort of mature postgraduate student, and his PhD was in his idea called half causation, which is kind of a method for coming up with technological inventions. So You used to kind of brainstorming, but this is a lot more systematic. So we kind of do these like branching diagrams, and there's a little bit more to it, but to identify gaps in what has already been done. So he's kind of back channeled the philosophy to like Dyson's vacuum cleaner to like the microwave oven to prove that once you've come up with a problem or solution, how you can translate inventions to his half causation sort of theory. And so I did this workshop. Um, it was really quite fun. We sort of took it quite seriously. There was like maybe like six for students. Um, and obviously that was that. And then I think it was a few months later, um, during the workshop, I think I came up with an idea that was related to sport. And so Mo knew that I was interested in the sport and he said, got in touch with like, St Patrick, I have an idea for a pattern in sport or a problem that could be patented within sport, can we have a session, just the two of us? And so we met up, and his problem that he'd he'd come up with was he went to his first ever rugby match, the Millennium Stadium in in Cardiff, and saw a mall collapse over the line, and uh, the referee couldn't give a decision as to whether it was a try or not, because he couldn't see the ball, and they go up to the television match official, and they can't get a clear angle on the ball, and Mo, is, he is like a, a really typical philosophy. It's like, how can you just not come up with a decision that could decide the game? He's like, it's either a try or it isn't a try. There's no in-between. Um, and so that was the kind of problem we posed. And we spent a few hours going through this half causation model. Everyone was looking at optical ways of using cameras to decide whether a try had been scored. And we were like, well, okay, let's create a new sort of domain and say, what if we didn't use cameras? And we're looking at ways of which we can measure whether a try had been scored in that situation when we couldn't see the ball via cameras. And that's where we sort of started coming up with the idea of passing. And yeah, it was just in, in that kind of session. And then we expanded it and we submitted our passing application pretty soon after that without doing any prototyping, without necessarily, I suppose, testing the idea to much detail. But we just introduced the concept of using electroconductive materials so like nickel based paint in like a line or a goal area in goal area and then if you have the same sort of material on, on like the inside layer of the ball you can be able to detect the change in, in resistance of those of that kind of effective circuit if you were monitoring it from the outside of the pitch and mm-hmm. um, therefore people obviously would be like oh will you get electric shock well no you wouldn't it's kind low charge there's no active power and then you can detect that sort of interaction from the side of the picture without having to see the ball. And that was the sort of mm-hmm. premise of which we patterned under. And um, it took a little while. We had two uh, professors from Royal Holloway University come in and, and sort of add a couple of extra things that were more specialised in that, sensors and signals. Nothing to do with my field. So it was just kind of like, you know, using his kind of method of coming up with gaps and ideas. And then we got a bit more... I wasn't confident in passing on my own. They we got their sort of seniority to come in and say, yeah, let's put in the £300 for the UK GB patent application. We wrote patent ourselves initially and submitted it on that basis. And then, yeah, then later down the line, we had an external investor come on board who the, the two professors knew from Royal Holloway, who then paid £4,000 into doing a, um, what's called a, it's like the, the patent highway basically it's like a, the, mm. all the world intellectual property offices sort of way of streamlining your patent application into other markets mm-hmm. and so now at the minute we're funding applications in the US and Canada and our patent sort of covers a whole wide array of sports in, in the UK and yeah we'll do it hopefully in the UK Canada um, but yeah it was crazy because like it's just an idea we kind of came up with in this sort of session um, but the because of the way Mo has sort of structured his process, it quite nicely filters into a pattern application, just in terms of what they're looking for in terms of novelty and inventive step. So as I said, you're, you're actually meeting criteria for the intellectual Property Office rather than proving that you have this ultimately amazing, brilliant, inventive idea. But yeah, you, I think you still need to probably be an engineer first. I think those engineering fundamentals give you the basis to then decide whether an idea is actually patentable. Mm. I think engineers and, yeah, PhD students in STEM subjects, I think could look at their idea or what they're working on during their, their doctoral studies and think, like, is this idea so different and so commercially valuable that I actually want to pursue... Get an IP for it and, mm-hmm. and then I'd recommend obviously getting people involved that, that can give you the financial power to do that so university is actually a great place to, to channel that within but unlike a company they don't have an IP strategy they don't have IP offices that are literally looking at your project and saying oh let's let's get that patented or let's get that trademarked or let's yeah. I like the way you've said that that's actually something we want to coin and make a legal entity um, it kind of takes a good supervisor to be like, oh, hold on a second. Let's turn that into a spin out or let's get that patented um, because there's so much innovation going on in this place.
1: So I can hmm. extrapolate quite a few things that are very relevant to a postgraduate degree, like getting bogged down in the detail versus seeing the bigger picture, hmm. constantly reminding yourself of the bigger picture, especially it, as it is a four-year-long journey or for your passing it was two plus years so there's there's definitely similarities
2: and like you say when you're at the end of your doctorate as well you, you go into an interview for a job and they say well what have you been doing for the last four years so I I, I suffer with it now like someone asked me to do a presentation I go into some really small detail I'm like this is the most important thing and they're looking at me <laughs> and over, they, they really aren't interested but actually what is your research in the bigger picture and like in that interview point or when you're looking for jobs and you think where can I have the most influence they want to know like where your value is mm-hmm. what have you done that's actually your kind of core skill and your kind of core lessons learned mm-hmm. and if you can tell your research in that manner
3: mm-hmm.
2: whether it's in the boring legal jargon of a patent or in the presentation that's pitching the patent for sales or pitching the patent for extra funding then suddenly you've got you've got a, a better mindset of how to present your work.
1: Absolutely and mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. To academic writing you may think if you're doing an industrial doctorate that's pulling you away from industrial deliverables or industrial reports but the ability to synthesize your data and organize it in a way that tells a story that tells a reader why what it means and why it is important is something that's extremely valuable because it is essential communication skill skills whether it's written or Um, or spoken and in an interview that's that's what you're going to have to defend is I've been looking at the bogged down detail of this but the bigger picture is this and this is where it fits in and this is why it matters.
2: I see and it's that kind of narrative and when you have a research group especially it's kind of probably the top of that research group has an idea of the narrative and then maybe as a PhD student you get a small part of that narrative but you have to be aware of what everyone's working on. Mm-hmm. And again, we talk about being alone in communities but having a joint narrative is a way of belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me in my PhD, obviously there's loads of people working on sustainability, loads of people working on composites and then there's a small group of us that's working on kind of composite sustainability, composite recycling, composite um, handling of recycled carbon fibres and other elements of composites and I could give you a two-hour talk on you know discontinuous fibers and how they behave in water but nobody at the top level group is interested in that what they're really interested is how that improves the welfare of this planet and and how that gets us to a sustainable future and that's that's kind of the challenge I always have in a minute because it's that big group but like Mm -hmm. We talk about being alone, but there's always that wider arc of of why what you're doing is interesting and Mm -hmm. have a bigger umbrella above
0: you. Absolutely. With that, you've really sort of tied it all back together very nicely, Patrick. And I think this is going to end up being a long one as it is, but we've gone through some really interesting topics. So I just want to say thank you for for giving us your time and 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 taking us through such a a breadth of important things for, for PhD students.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure postgraduate listeners will be able to resonate. Thank you very much
0: for being here, Patrick. Thanks, Claudia. Thanks, Matt. Thank you all for listening. This episode was brought to you by Claudia J. Martin and Matt Bone. The episode was edited and produced by Ivan Moroviev, Rachel Ward and Paul Spencer from the Bristol Doctoral College. We hope to see you again in the next episode.